Hi folks, this is Matt Sewell. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to episode 21 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for those who like history but aren't real crazy about history books. This week, instead of our usual short bio about one of the popes, we've got a special interview with Dr. Chad Pecknold, a professor at the Catholic University of America. He's also a writer and contributor to many popular news outlets regarding current events, particularly on the Catholic Church, the papacy, and the relationship between the church and politics in American culture. I'll leave it there because in the interview he goes into more of his background, and it's really interesting. It was a fantastic interview on everything from what the church teaches about human nature to how even bad popes can prove that the church is a divine institution. The discussion is framed around Dr. Pecknold's upcoming talk at CUA on March 26th. It's part of a day-long conference called Healing the Breach of Trust, and the link to live stream it can be found in the show notes. If you like the interview, please be sure to share it on social media or send it to a friend. But without further ado, please enjoy the show. Dr. Chad Pecknell, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Yeah. So um, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard about you. You're, you're fairly prominent on Twitter. Um, I, I, I think I first heard about you, or at least started um, noticing your name a lot more when you did the Augustine City of God study on Twitter, which was pretty cool. But for those who maybe haven't heard of you, um, don't know what you do, where you're from, um, maybe can you share just a brief who is Dr. Pecknold um, in a few minutes to start us off here? Yeah, I um, am an associate professor of theology at the Catholic University of America here in Washington, D.C., and I teach uh, theological foundations, fundamental theology, Christian anthropology, and I teach political theology with special reference to Augustine, the city of God, and uh, you're right, uh, a few years ago I uh, offered a seminar on Twitter for people who wanted to read the city of God. Uh, and it took 15 weeks to read the City of God, and to my surprise, thousands of people wanted to read this massive 1,500-year-old uh, book. And uh, we had a great experience, and that certainly um, uh, brought me to wider notice of, of the Catholic world. My, my background is actually, uh, came from a family. My dad was a lapsed Catholic, and my mother was a lapsed Protestant. So I grew up as a secular kid who thought the church might matter, and then became a Christian um, through evangelical friends in high school. I went to an evangelical college, but then I became a theology major to figure out who Jesus was. And as soon as I started studying theology, I started to realize that I knew who Jesus was, but I didn't know his church. Um, and eventually, um, my wife and I got married, and, and we were uh, became Catholic. We were received. 2006, um, and then in 2008, after I'd done my PhD at the University of Cambridge in England, um, and then I'd worked uh, for a couple of years at Loyola University in Baltimore, I got the job here at Catholic University, and I've been teaching here ever since, and having a great time. Excellent. Yeah. So yeah, obviously you mentioned uh, Augustine is your is your specialty, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So um, one of the main reasons I, I wanted to ask um you on the show and and do this interview is I know that you've been a kind of a prominent voice in the church with um I think people you'd have to be living under a rock at this point to not know that the church is freshly embroiled in probably a more intense scandal than it was in in 2002 it's certainly one of the worst 
times that the church has ever seen, but um, arguably maybe the worst, maybe not. But to kind of kick us off, so um, you've got a talk coming up here um, very soon at, at CUA, at Catholic U. Um, and so in regards to the scandal, maybe we can start with uh, kind of talking about what the church teaches about about human nature. I mean, we have to start obviously with the foundations of of life. And if we're ever going to talk about something, you know, as get down the road to talk about something like the papacy. But um, I mean, that's one of your one of your um, areas of focus. So can you maybe start there with yeah, with the church's teaching on human nature, and then with regard to the scandal, where I mean, what we can understand about the scandal and start to make sense of it in relation to that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's no surprise to people that there's sinners in the church. Um, we maybe shouldn't speak of it as a scandal as much as a heinous sin. And that heinous sin should happen in the church is rightly a shock to people because the church is Christ's chosen vehicle for his work of redemption. And so... I think people are right to hold the church to a higher standard and to see that the priesthood, this high office of the church, which communicates the sacred mysteries, should be corrupted so deeply and that, that the faithful should be betrayed by their fathers um, is uh, something that people find inexplicable. But by Catholic standards, it's eminently explicable. And it's explicable by human nature. Um, the Catholic teaching on human nature is that human beings are made um, good and very good, Genesis says. And Thomas Aquinas talks about three aspects of human nature, that, that there are the principles constitutive of our nature, by which he means our body and soul. And that's what's very good. Um, we're also made originally with an inclination to virtue. And originally, God made Adam and Eve to, uh, with original justice, with this uh, harmony between uh, people and a harmony with God. Uh, the original justice is uh, being able to render what's due to your neighbor and render what's due to your God, which is love, right? Mm-hmm. Sin, the fall damages our nature such that that original justice that Adam and Eve enjoyed was wiped out. We no longer have that harmony after the fall, and our inclination to virtue is weakened. But our principles constitutive of our nature, our body and soul, are intact and still very good. And so Catholic teaching is that human beings are good in their nature, but wicked in their wills. And the will is something which can be disordered, and it can be disordered because we lack that justice, that original justice. Now, Christ comes to redeem us so that he can, in a sense, restore the justice between man and God um, and bring aid and grace to our weakened wills so that we can walk upright with the Lord. When a soul is fallen out of grace as a baptized person, can be fallen out of grace, the will habituates itself downwards again. And what we see in wicked priests and wicked people generally is uh, not that they are wicked in themselves, but their their wills are turned away from the Lord, and their wills are turned in on themselves. And so 
scandal is the scandal that Christians who are made, uh, who are regenerated uh, by their baptism and are ordered to the Lord in the Mass uh, are somehow not united to Christ in such a way that their wills are being elevated, but their will is disordered. And what Thomas also teaches about the image of God in us is that the image of God in us is equal in all, but it's higher in the just and highest of all in the blessed. And what what raises up the image of God is Jesus Christ, the perfect image. And in in the 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 heart of a priest who abuses, what you have is an image which has not been elevated up, but which has been pulled down by his own will, by his own inward turn in on himself, uh, by the temptations of the devil. And this is, I think, how we have to speak about the scandal, is uh, about the image of God in man being pulled down into degradation, being pulled down into turbulent passion, which disorder the interior soul of a person. The church's cure is the same as it always has been, which is increased devotion. When we look back at all the scandals of the church, when sin has infested the priesthood, what we always see is a redoubling of disciplines and fervent processions to return us to the Father, to fall prostrate before God. What I think God is calling Christians to in the church today is penitent. We're in the season of Lent. What I think the this disordered uh, epidemic of interior desire has shown us is that the priesthood needs to be purified and the lady needs to be purified. We have let the desires of the world infiltrate our hearts and drag us down. And so I think this this is a great opportunity for both the laity and for priests and for bishops to uh, rededicate themselves. We, every time we go to confession, we rededicate ourselves to amend our lives. And this is what I think the world needs to see is a penitent church, a church which uh, knows how to recognize when its interior dispositions have been disordered, pulled down, and know how to turn to the perfect image of the Father and Jesus uh, to, to rectify the, the interior altars of our heart. Yeah, excellent. I think that's, that's such a great place to get back to, like the, the foundations, just the fundamentals. I mean... Um, it seems like so much of our attention is just wrapped up in, in this. I mean, we want justice because it's like you said, it's a, it's a fundamental part of human nature to, um, to have perfect justice ultimately, of course, right. Because God is, is perfect justice. Um, but can you maybe speak into a little bit more? You mentioned it, you touched on it a little bit that this is not something that's new to the church in terms of, in terms of a, a scandal kind of on a, on a church wide scale. Um, can you maybe just touch on maybe one example from the history of the church uh, where this was the case before? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, maybe it is for you too, 
I did an, uh, uh, an episode about a month and a half ago on on Gregory the Seventh. It was like when you read the the history of Pope Gregory the Seventh and Saint Peter Damien, who's a doctor of the Church, it reads like it could have been written yesterday. The stuff that they were yeah. dealing with. Yeah. No, it, you're absolutely right, and and um, you know, it, I think mostly we think about scandals in the Church as intellectual scandals. We think about Arianism. We think about Pelagianism, we think about Donatism, we think about the Albigensian heresy. These are all kind of intellectual heresies. Um, G.K. Chesterton said in 1931, he said the next great heresy will be a, a heresy of morality, and it will be a heresy of sexual morality. Um, and we have seen heresies of sexual morality before, and... Uh, the scandal of homosexuality in the priesthood and the monastic life was something that Peter Damien uh, named. I think it tends to come with very decadent um, cultures. Mm-hmm. When, when Christians uh, live in very decadent times, in times of excessive wealth and comfort, um, I think it turns the interior life towards the sensual. Uh, and uh, as I say, the will is is our problem. And the will has desires which are unquenchable apart from God. Mm-hmm. And so if the will isn't oriented towards God, it's going to continually find new pleasures. Uh, and... With the, in the whether it's Peter Damien's times writing about homosexuality in the priesthood or our times talking about um, mainly 81% of, of the priest abuse has been towards young men. That's clearly a, a problem with the, an interior disorder in the soul which falls in love with its own image. Right, A man loving his own image and then projecting that um, that's what happens in Peter Damien's time, uh, and that's what has happened in our abuse scandal, too, where the interior disposition has turned away from Christ and in on the self. Um, and it's fundamentally disordered. It is a movement away from the Father, and it's no surprise that fathers who turn away from our Heavenly Father are going to betray the children. Right. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So um, that's kind of a nice dovetail into the second piece that we that, uh, wanted to cover was, uh, so related to Augustine, back to Augustine. So he holds up the, the two cities, right? City of God, city of man. And so what does something like this tell us? I mean, you, you kind of already touched on it again. What does it tell us about the state of the church in light of those two things? Yeah, so Augustine's two cities is, a, is a, a, again, this idea of the the wheat and the weeds growing up together, wheat and the tares, um, uh, the sheep and the goat. And, and Augustine develops this biblical theme that there's Jerusalem and then there's Babylon. There's the city of God and there's the city of man. Now, by city of man, it doesn't mean like earthly cities where we all dwell. It actually means two different dispositions, as I've been talking about earlier. There's a city that is disposed or oriented. I think of it as the interior altar of the heart. The interior altar of the heart can be pointed towards God, like the image of God in us is like a mirror which can reflect 
city of God is that mirror in us pointing towards God and reflecting out the glory of God to the greater glory of God. And the city of man is when that mirror, that image of God in us gets turned around in our hearts. And we like our own image, enjoy our own image. Um, we're the selfie age, right? The city of man is like the selfie city. And... <laughs> And, and so this idea of the two cities is important for Augustine for a very important reason. He develops the idea of the two cities on the back of the Donatist controversy. And you remember the Donatist controversy is where Donatists is uh, wanting a pure church in which there are no sinners and that the bishops are pure and that sacraments depend on a pure episcopate. And uh, Augustine says no. The church doesn't depend on a pure episcopate. Why? Because the church is a divine institution that depends on Christ alone. The church is Christ's body. It's his church. He's the one who communicates himself to us in the sacraments. Uh, and the priests are and the bishops are his servants. Mm-hmm. And so Augustine wants to say, really, the church is the city of God on pilgrimage. What we see in the church are souls with competing dispositions, right? Maybe even in the same soul. Uh, usually in the same soul, a soul which is going to be sometimes the mirror is going to be turned in on itself and sometimes the mirror is going to be turned toward God. And these two cities run through every soul, but you can also see them commingle in the actions of the faithful, the actions priests, the actions of bishops, you can see good and bad actions in the church. No, never do those, does the commingling of the good and bad invalidate the divine institution of the church. If it did, right, the church would have been toast 2,000 years ago right. with Judas, right? So, so this, uh, you know, this idea of the two cities is it's something I think we need to recover um, in our theology that we understand, you know, when people understandably feel betrayed by, by the fathers and, and, and don't want to, want to have anything to do with church, I understand their sentiment, but it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the church as a divine institution, which is there for the redemption of souls and the, the, the sheep and the goat are going to be mixed together in the church. It's going to be a sanctuary for pilgrims who are headed towards the city of God, and it's going to be a shelter for fugitives, I'm afraid, who are turned away from God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's very important that we understand this, that um, the church's unity is something which has been divinely secured. It's not secured by our holiness. It's not secured by um, uh, even the priesthood or the episcopate. Um, fundamentally, those are divinely instituted as well. But they're divinely instituted in service of the fundamental unity that Christ gives and demonstrates uh, over 2,000 years of sinful behavior in the church. Uh, any other institution that would suffer this much imbecility ignorant and sin would have been toast uh, ages ago right yeah i always love the the line it kind of sums up that that whole idea is uh, was it cardinal cassia uh, who worked for Pius the seventh mentioned that a few episodes yeah. ago was 
when Napoleon said he was going to destroy the church, he's like, yeah, good luck. Cardinals have been trying to do that for 1900 years or 1800 years, whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, it's, uh, I always think uh, it's a demonstration of the credibility of the churches as having a divine institution. Whenever you see the pure ignorance and, 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 and even wickedness uh, of, of the church's hierarchy, sometimes uh, it's by God's grace that the church exists, um, not by the holiness of men. Yeah, and I think that point of unity is, is a good segue to the to the third and, and last topic that I wanted to cover was uh, the papacy as uh, the role of the papacy, excuse me, in securing kind of that divine institution that you talked about. So obviously this is a podcast about the papacy, so we have to come back to it eventually. But but building on the, the previous two points, why do we need a papacy? Why do we need a Peter in, in the, the chief place to kind of unify everybody? Well, I mean, the most fundamental reason is because Jesus instituted it. Um, the one who has given unity to the church, Pentecostal unity, the unity that comes as a gift um, from the triune God, uh, is a gift which has come uh, with uh, a sacred deposit entrusted to apostles. And first among those apostles is Peter. Mm-hmm. The early church fathers, uh, interestingly, not Augustine, but most of the early church fathers, looked to that passage of him, of Peter being given the keys by Christ, as him giving, being given the, the keys to the to the binding and loosing the sins of the uh, of the faithful, and of of being a servant of the unity that Christ gives to the church. And so as an instrument, right, keys are like an instrument that gets you into things. Right? They're not the thing itself. They, they give you access. And so what the keys give you is access to the unity, to the reality of Christ's unity. So the Pope himself is not the unity. He holds the keys to the unity. And so the, the church has developed the doctrine of of the papacy in ways which end up serving the servants of God, as Pope Gregory called the, the papal office. Someone who guards and who serves um, that unity, guards the sacred deposit that was entrusted to the first apostles, um, and also guards the unity that um, all the faithful would um, uh, abide in the faith that was delivered once for all. And and so he holds the keys that draw our attention back to Christ. In this way, the Pope is very much like Mary, and that his role is to point us to Christ, who is the source of our unity. Right, and, and how, um, I mean, in your mind, it's almost, or in my mind, sorry, it, uh, it seems like the papacy in that sense has proved again, referring back to the divine institution of the church, kind of in the inverse sometimes too, with the, you know, very clear bad popes from the Renaissance, from, you know, um, from pretty much the times of, of some of these scandals in, you know, the early thousands and the 1500s and things. Um, would you, yeah, would you agree with that? Kind of that it, it almost proves the, the divine nature of the church and that the office is still protected, even if the man is um, 
you know, sometimes abhorrently sinful. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I always think about this whenever there's the feast of the chair of St. Peter that the church celebrates as a universal feast. And I always think about this whenever we celebrate the the feast of the chair of St. Peter that, you know, we, we we don't have a devotion to particular popes unless they're particularly holy and, and then we're, we reverence um, uh, their service to God in particular ways. And if the church proclaims them saints, then we can have a, a higher devotion to them still. But generally, the, the church is uh, more interested in our attention being drawn to the chair of St. Peter. That is, the office itself is the divine institution. And those who occupy that office have a sacred duty. Now, they can fulfill that sacred duty to greater or lesser degrees, and some of them much lesser degrees. <laughs> and so we, you know, we see folks who have been morally corrupt, um, despicably even morally, uh, father children, uh, contrary to their, their promises, uh, celibacy. And we have also seen folks, John uh, the 22nd, who who actually says things which are false about the faith, uh, and we can't. Um, and so we can we can see the ways in which a, a pope personally might not live up to all the demands of the office, but the office somehow protects them. And I, and I really believe this, that the, the office, uh, the Holy Spirit guards the office itself um, and, and guards it so that... Um, even the deficiencies of an individual are not going to capsize the boat. Right. Yeah, I uh, I just thought of this. Um, it actually came up, just, just kind of cropped up in my mind when I was sitting at Mass on Sunday, actually, of all things, because um, in my diocese here uh, in Spokane, I know um, not the immediate predecessor, everybody calm down, but I know we've had bishops in the past, um, a couple in particular, in the history of our diocese who have been really morally objectionable, like have, have had serious, um, issues with, uh, all of the stuff that we've been talking about. And yet there's still, you know, the pictures of the chronology of bishops isn't changed. And I'm thinking of, it reminded me of, of the papacy. I mean, we have, you know, 264 popes around, um, is it in, is it, uh, St. John Lateran, right? But, um, we don't whitewash the pictures of the guys who did a bad job. Um, and it's just a very it was just a very interesting thought to me i mean uh, along the lines of of sometimes proving the divine institution in the inverse when it's a bad pope um maybe you could speak into that uh, just it just kind of made me think of it when you were when you were talking then well you know it, what strikes me just you saying that is that um uh we are not good judges of of popes um god is the best judge of the popes mm-hmm. um we can make relative judgments and think one pope is holier than another. Um, I think I think the faithful do that all the time. I think you know Benedict had to press down the popular demands for Santo Subito when John Paul II died, um, uh, and I think that was a good instinct. You know, we shouldn't rush to canonize every pope. Um, but I think it's very difficult for the lady, even over the long haul, to make really um, 
it's actually the, the church is wise to not whitewash. I mean, McCarrick's an interesting case because, you know, McCarrick gets laicized. Mm-hmm. Um, that is actually the church's using canon law to say, okay, we actually do have a mechanism for whitewashing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called laicizing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, but, but, but we're going to hold ourselves to a standard for that, mm-hmm. and that's law. Uh, that someone has to have gone through a just judgment. And I think we have to guard against unjust judgments of the papacy, um, which we, we constantly, um, it's a temptation, right? You know, either good or bad, right? You just love Benedict or you don't like Francis. Um, we, we rush into judgments of popes with very little evidence and not with a lot of um judicial reasoning about why we could consider a pope good or bad. Um, the best thing that the average lay faithful can do for the pope is to pray for him. And for most of Christian history, that's all the lady ever knew or did. Right. Yeah, I just think of it's it's so interesting, the phenomenon that, that social media produces, that this like, ultra-connected, that... Um, we see the Pope almost as, as our own pastor, as if he's at our parish down the road. But the, am- the amount of mechanisms and bureaucracy and people around him who are, you know, controlling or shading or whatever, um, are just like so beyond, uh, even a person like yourselves understanding probably, I mean, and, and you, you know, uh, live and breathe this sort of thing all day, let alone the average Catholic who, you know, maybe just goes to Mass on Sunday, but then reads about the Pope in the paper or something, right? So I think like, you know, somebody like Benedict, I, I always kind of balk when people are saying, oh, he should have known, or John Paul II should have known that all this was going on. I'm like, you, we have no idea how complex this is and like what the network looks like or any of that. Yeah, I, I think that's become increasingly clear to me is, um, you know, Benedict said, and people took this as, as if he was saying this just for him, but I think this holds for, for all, especially modern popes, but maybe all popes, period, um, that his influence, you know, Benedict said, you know, in his papal rooms, I think he mentioned to someone, my influence doesn't go beyond the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, by which I think he meant, I'm not as influential as you think. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's an army of curial officials who govern my life. Mm-hmm. You know? And if Bennett was saying that, I don't know why we would think that was also true for JP2. Uh, certainly he observed being one of the people that governed JP2 coming and going, especially in terms of his teaching. Mm-hmm. And, and with Francis the same, you know, there is a, a small army of curial officials who govern his comings and goings and um, certainly influence uh, what he has to say at different different points. Uh, so we, we certainly have to pray for the Holy Father uh, and uh, that uh, the Holy Spirit would protect and guide him in, 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 in the uh, service that he gives to Christ's church. Yeah. Amen. Um, yeah, we've been going, gosh, for a half an hour now, which is um, hard to believe, but on those three points, just kind of any, any, um, maybe last parting shots, especially with your, uh, your talk coming up here, I guess within a week, right? Yeah. Next week we're doing a, a talk at Catholic university called healing the breach of trust. And I think it's, 
pretty evident to the world that we have a breach of trust in the church. Um, now, I was asked to talk about clericalism, uh, and uh, so I'm taking an unusual path to talk about clericalism on the 26th because um, I think a lot of people think of clericalism as some problem with power. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say that clericalism is the problem of scandal. What they what they mean is uh, there's a problem with priestly power, lording it over people. That a real problem is is power uh, and the corruption of power. I actually take a different view. I don't think that the that the root problem of clericalism is power, but paternity. Um, that I, I think clericalism, as Pope Francis has often linked clericalism to narcissism, mm-hmm. which I think of as this problem of the interior altars getting turned around in the heart. Um, narcissism, uh, for Francis, is that's really key to his understanding of clericalism. And so I think something is um, more, more importantly than power in understanding clericalism. Clericalism should be understood as an illness of fatherhood. That that really we've had a we've had a disease which has uh, uh, caused priests uh, by their own free will to in a sense not be fathers or to turn in turning away from the father. They they have uh, created a, a, a generation which turns away from the father as a result. This is fundamentally diabolical. I'm going to, I'm going to talk uh, on the 26th about three different terms in which we can see this happening contextually. There's a turn away from the father in metaphysics and in theology. I'll talk a little bit about how changes in seminary education at the level of metaphysics and theology have uh, uh, turned men away from the Father mm-hmm. and away from their own fatherhood. And then I'm going to talk a bit about uh, moral changes, moral relativism, as uh, moral relativism as something which has uh, also seeped into seminary formation. Uh, so we can have James Martin talking about something not historically understood to be intrinsically disordered, now he wants to talk about it as differently ordered. Well, mm-hmm. where did we get that idea? Where did that idea come in? That didn't come into James Martin's mind all by himself. He was trained that way. So right. how did seminary formation influence a generation of men to think that intrinsically disordered could be differently ordered? And so a shift in relativism, I also want to say, has turned um, some priests formation away from the Father. And then finally, the most controversial point will be in liturgy. Not that um, there should be uh, strong divisions between partisans of uh, ad populum uh, and ad orientum, but there's something interior that goes on uh, in some priests when they celebrate ad populum, Mm -hmm. that they begin to think that they are the focus. And while certainly ad orientum is not uh, a guarantee that a priest will be rightly formed in his interior disposition, I think it gives you a better chance of having the interior altar of your heart turned towards Christ with the people behind you rather than facing the people as if you're the star. 
Excellent. Yeah, that sounds like it'll be a fascinating talk. I love uh, the the byproduct that can come. I mean, I don't love it, but obviously, but it, it's super fascinating. The, the byproduct that can come from such a fundamental shift as, like you said, the altar of the heart being turned one way or being turned the other, and then all of these ripple effects that have happened down the line um, that bear poisonous fruit in the life of the church. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Thomas calls it calls it a quasi law, but it's there's a kind of law of iniquity, you know, that follows from a certain interior disposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting and and very sad, frankly, that it it um, often doesn't manifest. Like you said, over fifty years, it doesn't manifest until the next generation or two generations down, which is another argument for why you and I and everybody else should be forming ourselves well, because we don't know what kind of ripple effect that we will be held held to account for probably on our dying day because of our negligence in affecting, you know, future generations, right? And, and I think we have to get over the anger and start being constructive and, and thinking about what laity can do to heal the breach of trust. And also think about what can be done theologically to improve seminary formation. Certainly. Seminary curriculum. Uh, what's being taught. Who's being becoming a theologian and teaching in seminaries. Um, what, what sort of formation are they going through? Uh, all of these things matter. Um, uh, we we have we almost have a picture of the of the theologian's perfect dissenter of Catholic teaching, and that is disastrous. You think you think the fifty years of the image of the theologian trained seminarians as dissenter from Catholic theology is going to have no effect on the priesthood. Yeah, yikes. That's crazy. And so we really have not dealt with the questions that are really fundamental, like how are men formed? Not just how do we screen, this is the question that we kind of stop at, how do we screen, can we screen for deep-seated desires of the inclination? Yes, we probably can, will it be perfect? No, it probably won't. Is that the most important question? Um, maybe not, because maybe the more important question is, after you've done screening, how are you forming? Right. And and what are you forming priests for? Um, are you forming them to be? Uh, are you forming them to be managers of parishes, or uh, or are you forming them to be shepherds? And that Augustine would call bishops and mountains. Uh, these peaks which the people should look to as, as exemplars of virtue and holiness. Huh. That, that's what seminary formation should be ensuring that we, we're turning all of them in towards the Father so that they themselves can be fathers. So I, I think this is, if, if I have one single prayer, it's really, it's really St. Michael's prayer, but also St. Joseph's prayer that, um, that men be good natural fathers, but especially that we have men becoming, responding to the vocation, to the priesthood, uh, out of love for the Father and wanting to be themselves fathers. Amen. Wow, that sounds like it'll be a great talk. So will that be available afterwards online, or where where can people go to find more info? I think they'll live stream it on the 26th. But uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of information at the Catholic University of America website. So I'm sure you can Google the uh, healing of uh, breach of trust. Uh, it's run by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University. It should be 
Excellent. Yeah. And I'll try to make sure to uh, put a link to that in the show notes. But um, other than that, where can folks find you and, and your work? Where can folks find me? Well, you can find me on uh, uh, Twitter at CC Pecknold. Um, and you can uh, certainly feel free to email me if you're not on social media, which is a wise thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you, I can be reached by email at Pecknold, uh, Pecknold at CUA.edu. I want to extend a special thank you, obviously, to Dr. Chad Pecknold for being on uh, this episode of the Pokecast. It was a fantastic interview. I hope you agree. Um, and again, if you really liked what you heard, please be sure to share on social media, send to a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast at iTunes. If you leave a review, uh, obviously, it'll help more people who like uh, podcasts like the podcast to find it. But if you leave a review, we'll make sure to uh, shout it out on the show at the end of a future episode. And related to that, I realized that I read the wrong new review. So uh, I forget who it was last week, but uh, I believe they got the review read twice on two episodes. But our most recent ep- uh, review is from Jay DeRosa1990. Uh, five stars, excellent podcast. This podcast provides excellent bite sized info bursts about the popes of the Catholic Church. It's extremely useful for those people like me who are interested in church history and Catholic apologetics. So thank you, Jay DeRosa. Really appreciate your feedback. Uh, also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, I want to ensure that we can keep churning these out. Um, they're not free to produce, um, you know, just to go to pay for uh, website costs, uh, hosting fees, things like that. Be sure to visit patreon.com slash Matt Sewell for a buck or two an episode. You can get early ap- access to each podcast episode, plus access to other sweet patron-only benefits. Uh, posted a short audiobook um, recently and we'll be posting some other things um, here in the future. So that's patreon.com slash M A T T S E W E L L, patreon.com slash Matt Sewell. And then lastly, if you're not already, be sure to check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at The Popecast. So that's it for this week. Thanks again to Dr. Pecknold for being our guest. Be sure again to check out the show notes for a link to the live stream for Healing the Breach of Trust at Catholic University of America, March 26th. Uh, it's actually a day-long uh, series of talks. Dr. Pecknell will be in the morning, but there's a bunch of other great speakers there as well. I'm pretty sure it'll be available as recordings. Um, but yeah, be sure to check out the link. So that's really it. I'll go ahead and stop talking now. Until next week. <laughs>